0: Number eight, Psalms, first quarter, 2024. Daniel Duda.
1: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. We're starting lesson eight, Wisdom for Righteous Living, in the quarter on the book of Psalms. Dr. Daniel Duda is our moderator. Our opening prayer is by Karen.
2: Dearly beloved Father in heaven, we want to pause at the beginning of our class and just gather our scattered thoughts and focus our senses on you and your extravagant love for us, which stretches to the unreachable heights above us and creates a limitless foundation underneath us and wraps around us in a never ending embrace of your joyful delight. And as we inhale deeply, we remember that your love fills every molecule of our being. And as we exhale slowly, We remember that we are called to share the abundance of your love with every person we meet. And so today we pray for a special blessing on Daniel as he shares fresh insights from the Psalms. May he be filled with your wisdom and love as he leads us on this journey into deeper wisdom for our lives. Thank you for the sparkling diamonds of wisdom embedded in the Psalms and throughout your word that shine like stars in the darkest night and guide us through the uncertain mists and mysteries Of our lives, when we have no idea where to go next. Because when we live our lives wisely and lovingly with you, it brings joy to you, to others, and also to ourselves. And we also pray for all those who are listening, wherever they are, and whatever their personal situation, as they listen to our conversation, may they discover the wisdom they need for their own lives, so that we may all leave this class inspired, wiser, and more loving growing daily closer to your likeness. And we just want to tell you, Father God, with all of our heart, we love and adore you with endless and wordless praise from now to eternity.
3: Amen. Amen. Thank you, Karen, and welcome everybody to our lesson number eight. Let me start this way. Do you like reading books? And if yes, why? So for those of you who like reading books, why do you like reading what somebody else wrote? What is it that reading books does for you, David? Reading books gives you the opportunity
1: to go places that you can't physically go to and learn things that you don't otherwise
3: have access to. All right. So it gives you experiences that you wouldn't have otherwise. Lou?
4: It gives you insight into how people have lived, maybe, if it's about a person and some of the things that they have learned in their lives that could be good information and lessons for me to learn can be a very helpful, beneficial exercise.
3: All right. Thank you. I have read some time ago, somebody saying, I have given up reading books. I have discovered that they take my mind off myself. Now, this quarter, we are reading Psalms. I can understand that you read either a description of journeys, as David Thompson mentioned, of someone else, so that you can visit places that you did not, or as Lou mentioned, something that gives you a different perspective. Do you read the book of prayers? What's the value of reading somebody else's prayers? Or praying yourself? Back to Lou.
4: Well, this morning, for example, I just love hearing Karen pray. And I don't know how she comes up with all those wonderful adjectives and expressions about how deeply God loves us. Sometimes I just can't always find the words, but Karen just seems to find those beautiful
3: words. (laughs) Okay, thank you. And
5: if the prayer is a conversation that somebody is discussing perhaps their experiences, with God, then we can learn or we can recognize that we aren't the only ones who may have had this or that experience. And I find that very encouraging.
3: Yes, thank you, Terry. That's right. Larry? It's the thinking in the mind is how God communicates. So when I'm reading your book that you've written about your life
1: experiences... God is helping me understand life experiences
6: that will help me in facing what I have to do today.
3: Yes, thank you. Thank you, Larry. Now, in different worship traditions, the book of prayers are used. In some traditions, the premium is on an impromptu prayer. As Lou mentioned, one of the reasons why we are blessed by Karen's prayers, and we keep asking her to come back and to pray another one, is that she spent more than five minutes thinking about that prayer. So it wasn't just when she was called upon, she said, "Okay, let me say something, because then nobody would remember it 30 seconds later. And like in a local church, if the person who is praying just fainted, the eyes are closed and heads are bowed down, and somebody would step in and finish the prayer, nobody would even notice. Sometimes I wonder whether the heads are closed and the eyes bow down, but that's another point. So there is a value in thinking through what you want to say. And one of the things working in the academic environment was that if students have a complaint, we always ask them to submit it in writing. So it's true that they are emotional and full of it when they come and complain about something which is wrong. But we always say, yep, I hear you. Now go and write it down and send it to us and we will deal with it. Because there is something by putting things in writing that forces your thoughts to get a discipline, to find an expression, and then you can read it yourself and make up your mind if this is actually what you want to say. And probably all of us have the blessings of an email that you put your heart into and you didn't send and you were blessed next day and saw the wisdom in it or the foolishness of sending it and then later regretting that if I waited 24 hours, I would have said it differently. So here we are in our worship tradition. Usually we value the impromptu prayers and very seldom we read the book of common prayers or prayers of someone else And, of course, that reflects also the types of psalms that you can hear in a local church. As you already had the excellent teaching of John Pauline for the first lessons, you know there are psalms of orientation where Psalmi says, the Lord is my strength, the Lord is my stronghold, with him I can manage anything. But There are psalms of disorientation. How long, O Lord, I am going to say this and you don't listen? Why don't you, Lord, do something about my present situation? So there are psalms of complaint, of disorientation. And there is a significant portion of them, actually. There are more psalms of disorientation than there are psalms of orientation. And, of course, then there are psalms of reorientation, where the psalmist starts with complaint and, How long, O Lord, I am going to raise my voice and you do nothing and you do not hear me? And then after he recites his complaint, he mentions, but your steadfast love lasts forever. And it's good for me to come closer to you. And then there is a change of mood and the change of transition. Bob? Thinking about David back in those days, he had the ability
1: to go to a prophet, at least on some occasions, and ask for direct guidance from God, where he almost could get a Response to his prayers through the prophets that existed at that time, at least from reading some of the stories, it seems to be the case. Where now we pray to God, but we don't have a prophet to go to to talk to to say what is God's thoughts of what I'm praying for. So I'm wondering if that's a difference between us and David, or did David not have such direct reactions from God as it sometimes seems, at least in my own life, I thought would be nice sometimes to be able to have an audible response for the Urim and the Thummim, but we're not supposed to have that for a reason. But yet in ancient times, or am I misunderstanding what was going on with David? Because it seems like in the Bible stories, he could actually get a direct answer.
3: Yeah, of course. So when his head being on his shoulders in the evening is at stake, David is very eager to ask, Lord, should I go against the Philistines? Will you deliver me? Will this head will be still on this neck tonight? And interestingly, when he wants to add another wife to his harem, he doesn't ask the Lord, Lord, do I need another wife? So Urim and Thummim has its own set of problems. And having a live prophet has its own set of problems. So in 1915, God says, Ellen, it's better for you to rest a little because these people are never going to grow up. Because whatever the major problem, they write a letter to St. Helena, California, and they want an answer, a straight answer from the Lord. And yes, we spoke about the disappearance of God through the canon that God speaks very clearly in the book of Genesis. And the further you progress through the Bible story, God speaks less and less. And part of the reason is what kind of people God wants to produce. But back to Psalms. Like Psalm eighty-eight fourteen, 14, the psalmist says, Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? Now, if you stood on a Sabbath morning or Sunday morning for Sunday keeping churches in a church and started your prayer, Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? What do you think? What kind of response would you get from the congregation? Do you think you will be called for a prayer again in many Christian circles, such exclamations would not be accepted. But there is a reason why you have it as a part of the canon in the Bible, why the largest book of the Bible is a hymnal. And there is no music, only the words. Because the music needs to be supplied by each generation because it's 100% cultural. Although we can have endless discussions about what kind of music God enjoys and what kind of music God can't listen to but we are dealing with the book of psalms now you need to know that psalms are not historic literature so book of genesis is a book of numbers book of first of samuel is a historic book it describes what happened in the life of abraham life of joshua life of samuel life of the nation of israel and of course one of the difficult questions is how something that happened once in history, in life of someone else, becomes the word of God to us in different time, in different contexts, in different culture. Now, Psalms are not prophecy, like Jeremiah, Ezekiel, or Hosea, and Psalms are not promises, In spite of what you hear in the local Sabbath school, Psalms are the expressions and the prayers of individuals or written by individuals for the group, like the Psalms of Ascent. These are the songs that the pilgrims would be singing as they progress towards Jerusalem for the feast. So where do Psalms belong in the Bible? Do you remember? We have covered that before. And it's important in context for our lesson number eight. If they are not history, if they are not prophecy, where do they belong in the Bible? Poetry. So that's the form, but they are wisdom literature. They are wisdom literature. They are together with Job and Proverbs and the Song of Solomon. They are wisdom literature. And the title for this lesson is Wisdom for Righteous Living. So one of the things, when you read the experiences of others, as both David and Lou indicated, you learn something for how you can live your life. Sean. I enjoy being able to evaluate
7: somebody else's writing, their life experience. And in this case, in relation to the Psalms, it's an important part of the exercise of my spiritual life and discipline to be able to evaluate the experiences that are described, the pleading, the anger, uh, the difficulty. I enjoy evaluating that so that I can position My own experience before God. So it's an important exercise for me to look at, listen to, and give consideration to what I am being exposed to. So, this exercise of evaluation, and more and more, that evaluation, I'm grateful that it has turned toward evaluating who God is in this moment of writing or reading or pleading, it's insightful. And I reject some of it. There's some of it that I don't like and won't take into
3: my experience in this evaluation process. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Sean. Wow, people listening around the world will be worried that you reject the inspired word of God. But if you are used to reading Romans or Galatians or Second Timothy, Moving from New Testament letters to Old Testament poetry is like crossing the mall from the Air and Space Museum and entering the National Gallery of Art. And that's why you need to have a different approach, because we are dealing with poetry. And the authors in poetry are conveying real thoughts and events and real emotions to us, but they express the literal truth figuratively. And we need to keep that in mind when we deal with Psalms. So here is the challenge How does the word of a psalmist to God in a Judean desert in 1,000 years before Christ, when David says, Lord, with you I can manage anything, become the word of God to us in 2023 in California or Papua New Guinea or wherever you are listening to the final recording? Can you see the problem that when Psalmist says, Lord, you and I together can manage anything, and you take that as a promise and apply it to metastatic cancer. Is that a fair use of the Bible? Is that the word of God from God to you? Or you have to be careful how you apply biblical poetry that was written in a certain place, in certain time, in certain culture, to express the individual Experiences, thoughts, emotions, and events of a psalmist. Let's go to Chris. Good to see you. Welcome.
6: Good morning, Daniel. So I was thinking about Psalm 23. And in Psalm 23, it says, verse 2, he lets me rest in fields of green grass, leads me to quiet pools of fresh water. So imagine we rewind the clock and we go back to when the Jews were in Auschwitz and you read, psalms 23 verse 2 and you say boy this is just a blessing i'm so glad that i read psalm 23 2. you're thinking wait a minute i'm here in auschwitz i'm about to be gassed i'm about to be gone when look at all these people around me and so forth so to your point to apply this to promises or to think that somehow everything's going to turn out great just because it says something here In Psalms, is not only completely unrealistic, but you think about what promises does God really make in life? I would argue there's really only one promise, maybe, and that is that I can evaluate who I want to be with for eternity. But even then, there are a lot of babies who die. They never got to evaluate things, right? Now God's going to have to figure that out. But my point is, I don't really think there's a whole lot of things that really are promised to us from God in reality but that doesn't mean that I shouldn't trust him that doesn't mean that I shouldn't try to do all these different things occupy it till I come but at the same time I don't think Psalms is that helpful in so many different situations of let's say you know you're going through something terrible you could go to Psalm 26 and read that and say this is a prayer of a good person and I am safe from all dangers in the assembly of his people, I praise the Lord. Well, what if you're surrounded by other Adventists and it's hunky-dory and everything's safe and you happen to be in a safe place? That sounds like a great psalm for you and Psalm 26, 12. But then I go to Zimbabwe or I go to Burundi when they had all the killings and you try to pray that prayer, right? And so a lot of this stuff breaks down and it just doesn't make sense to apply some of these things to everyday life. And so I think the major thing, you asked the question about why do we enjoy reading? Why do we read? It's so that we don't have to go be like King Solomon and go from having the most wisdom in the world, if not to ever come, and then throw it all away. Unlike his father, David, who, yeah, he made mistakes, but I would argue he actually had a better perspective than even his son. So we can learn these things. I don't have to go do drugs to know drugs are bad. I can read about stuff and and not make those same mistakes and I think Psalms is here to also help us through some of these things but I would rather look at the story of Job. I would rather look at the gospels and look at different examples and then say okay, you know what, that's more of an example than the Psalms.
3: All right. Now there's a value in literature. You even have the Nobel Prize for literature. And so for most of humanity, we agree that literature has its own place, but we need to learn how to read it. And there is value in the historical books, like those that give you the history of certain people or certain nations. There's value in the Gospels, the historical stories from the life of Jesus. But there is value in the wisdom literature. That's why we have it part of the Bible. The problem is that if we have not learned how to read it and we are going to use the approaches from other parts of the Bible, that brings us into a problem. And that's why the wisdom literature is so important, because in historical books, you will have, if you do this, these blessings will come. If you are disobedient and you don't do these things, these curses will come into your life. And then... The life of Job, which is wisdom literature, tells you actually not all the time. It doesn't function like that. There are situations like Auschwitz, or let's say Oswienczyn, to use the Polish name, where other things come into place and other rules apply. Yeah. Proverbs. As John Pauline says, all things being equal, this is how things usually work out. This is what usually happens. If it rains, there will be mud. That's a proverb. Now, if it rains on a tarmac, then it won't be any mud. But if you take a proverb as a promise, you get into trouble because it's not a promise. It's a proverb. And then you feel that God has not delivered. And that's why it's so important to study the book of Psalms because we use them in our worship. But imagine if someone has a difficult week, their loved one received a terminal diagnosis, and you come to Sabbath morning and you read a psalm of orientation, how God is wonderful how everything is going well and smoothly, wouldn't you prefer it on that Sabbath morning to hear a psalm of disorientation and say, "Lord, I don't know where you are. Everything is falling apart." And there is a reason why after Psalm 22 there is Psalm 23. After Psalm 105 is 106, and we'll deal with that as we progress. And we'll go to 23, uh, Chris, that you mentioned in next lesson number nine. Let's go back to Lou, and then we will move on.
4: A couple of things. Chris mentioned, Auschwitz. And that always takes me to Viktor Frankl, who went through Auschwitz. And he really demonstrated that no matter what our circumstances, we have the power of choice as to how we're going to go through the circumstance. Jesus gave us that greatest gift, the power of choice. And when I read the scriptures, if I have not asked the Holy Spirit to please guide and lead me as I study and read. I'm going to always misread the information and misapply the information. To me, it's a prerequisite to always, always ask for the Holy Spirit to guide my mind and enlarge my mind. And then when it comes to the promises, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. I love that. No matter what my circumstances are, I don't have to be afraid. I don't have to fear. I can find that perfect peace with my father, no matter what's going on, like the three guys in the fiery furnace. Look at the stories in the Bible that confirm that. So I heard a preacher say, God and me make an army. And so I don't have to walk through life being defensive, fearful, or trying to protect myself. That's God's job and my guardian angel's. And I can just have that wonderful peace that he promises.
3: Thank you. Now, of course, the question is how does the Holy Spirit work? Just a quick prayer for the Holy Spirit to guide me. Will that help me to know the difference between Revelation, apocalyptic literature, and between the Psalms of disorientation? Or does the Holy Spirit use spirit anointed teaching so that if somebody broadens our horizons in teaching that helps us to understand the genres of biblical literature. The Holy Spirit can do more than with sincere prayer, but a lot of ignorance. Remember when we had a few weeks ago the book of Esther? We said, how do you read the book of Esther before the Holocaust and after the Holocaust? How do you read I will fear no evil before Pavlov and his Nobel Prize? and after Pavlov and we don't blame Constantine that he didn't know what Martin Luther said and we don't blame Martin Luther that he didn't know what LNG White said because how could they so we don't blame a psalmist that he didn't know what Ivan Petrovich Pavlov got the Nobel Prize for in 1904 when he discovered that we don't choose the emotions Emotions are there when you go through a difficult situation, because then you easily can, reading the psalm, can create a sense of guilt and shame that actually I still feel, I still experience fear. So something must be wrong with me. I'm not a good believer. While we know after Pablo, no, you don't choose your emotions, we just don't make decisions based on emotions. So that's why we have the Sabbath school class, so that we help each other and we help Studying the literature, the value of it, and see how both literature and psychology and physiology actually. Pablo got the Nobel Prize for physiology. Now let's go to Joanne.
8: So, I'm glad you said that because my comment is tied to that. In that, you know, I hear about Viktor Frankl all the time. Every time Auschwitz comes up, I hear Viktor Frankl, and I always think the reason we hear about him is because he's an anomaly. Right. If everybody who was there had the same experience he did and had the same reaction and took away the same lessons, we would never bring his name up. Right. Because he would just be one of many. But I think the reason we do is because the way he handled it and the people he observed handled it were so contrary to our human inclinations, right? To our human frailties and so on. So I look at him as a that is an amazing story but i don't set myself up for that is the expectation of how i should experience life and how i should experience emotion because i i'm human right i'm going to be scared i'm going to be afraid there's going to be situations that make me want to give up and look on the horrible side of everything those things are going to happen to me and if i look at someone like victor frankl and say Well, if he did it, then I should be able to do it. I am setting myself up to just add to my misery with the disappointment if I fail, right? So I see him as inspiring, but I just try to acknowledge that people like that are inspiring because they're anomalies, not because they're the norm. And my experience and what I'm going through is perfectly okay and perfectly normal. And I'm gonna handle it in a way that
4: I need to.
3: Thank you. Thank you, John. That's very helpful. And let's go to Bob Kern. So what's the value of Psalms? Why do we have them as part of the Bible?
9: Well, the book of Psalms contains the full range of emotions that a person can have. And I know a number of people that sometimes are afraid of the emotions that they are having, that they shouldn't be having those emotions. But then I think back to, you know, like Job and David, they were not necessarily shy about hiding their emotions. And I think that God doesn't, Necessarily want us to hide our emotions either. I think he'd rather that we have our emotions, even when they're bad emotions, as long as we let him know that these are the emotions that we're experiencing. Because I think, like in Revelation, where they're talking about the message to the Laodiceans I wish that you were hot or cold, but instead you're lukewarm. And to my mind, being lukewarm is not having any emotions, or worse, having those emotions and not telling God about them. Because I think God would much rather that we talk with him, even when we're not happy with him, than we not talk to him at all. Because if there's no communication taking place, there's no communication taking place.
3: All right. Thank you. So let's go to our memory text. Psalm 90, verse 12.
5: So teach us to count our days that we may gain a wise heart.
3: All right. Thank you. Or in the words of New King James Version, as you have it in the lesson, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. So you can see it's poetry. Normally we count our years. But here the psalmist says, teach us to number our days because it's not only years that are important. And why do we do that? It's very interesting because today it's the 1st of July. The 1st of July has a special significance for me. And for a number of years, every time when I was away in the military, as you remember, or people in Czechoslovakia or university graduates in Czechoslovakia had to do one year of military service, but theology graduates had to do two years of military service to discourage young men from studying theology. So when I was 25 years old, I went away from my wife, from my local church for two years to do my military service. And every time I would write to Vera, this is how many days we have been married. And today, to count our days, it's 14,610 days of our marriage or exactly 40 years, a ruby anniversary. So to follow the memory text, teach us to number our days. So it's 14,610 days of marriage or 2,087 weeks and 40 days it's poetry, as you can see. Why is it important? So if you look under number two, and we go into our first lesson for Sunday, which is Psalm 119. Let me give you some news. We are not going to read it all. If you were in some Bible trivia, there might be a question. How many verses does Psalm 176 has? And it would be a very difficult question. But look at number two in your study notes. One of the most fascinating features of Old Testament poetry is acrostics. What is acrostics? Acrostic is that each letter stands for something. So each line starts with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So if this was written, the first line would be something like ah acrostics what wonderful artistry. And the next line would be, before us lies. Can you not see the beauty? Do you not sense the wonder? Each one of us should marvel, for acrostics are marvelous things, given to delight us, how wonderful and delightful they are. So each next line starts with next letter of the alphabet. And that goes back to Karen's prayer at the beginning. You don't pray prayers like that impromptu. You don't write a psalm like that just as it flows. You have to think about it. And so you have famous psalms like 25, 34, and 145 as good examples of acrostics because you don't see it in English translation, but in Hebrew, they start with Aleph, Bet, Dalet, and they follow. Now, here's a difficult question. If each line is next letter, how many verses there will be? 22, because there are 22 letters of Hebrew alphabet. Uh, If you go to Psalms 111 or 12, 112, this time the acrostics will be not through each verse, it will be through each line. And so most of these Psalms have 22 lines, but if you look into your Bible, they have only 10 verses each because there is more than one line to each verse. Now, that brings us to Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible. And why is it longest? Because every first word of each of the eight verses start with the same letter of the alphabet. So eight lines, eight verses with A, eight verses with B, and all the way down to the end of the alphabet. So you have 22 times eight, which is 176, and that's the answer. How long is the longest chapter of the Bible? 22 times 8, which is 176, so 176 verses. Now, that's poetry. When was the last time you went bananas about the law so that you write 176 verses, how wonderful is God's law and how crazy you are about it? Maybe when you fell in love, you were able to write some poetry. Some people do. To your loved one. We have some in the Song of Solomon, uh, of course, coming from a different culture. If you quoted that to your spouse, probably they would not be flattered by that, and they would not see that as proper love poetry in the different culture. They would find it highly offensive comparing their teeth or their neck to things from a different culture, but that's what poetry does to you. So, why would someone write? eight verses starting with the same letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and they ate more and so 22 times. Why would they do this? Or just some 25, some 34 or 145, you know, 22 verses, each starting with a different letter of alphabet. Why would someone do that? Rita?
0: It would certainly concentrate the mind on working out exactly what you want to say. And how to express it. It's the complete opposite of the current sort of vogue for free verse, poetic prose, which isn't poetry to me, I'm afraid. You might as well write it as a narrative. But to do it in such a disciplined way takes a lot of effort and a lot of skill and a lot of time.
3: Yes, and you have the first six chapters of Daniel where you have the stories. And you struggle, what kind of lesson are we supposed to learn from that? So there is a a value in prose telling you, writing a novel, and you see the descriptions and what happened and who killed and where the corpse was hidden, etc. So there's value in that prose, but there's value in poetry. Karen?
2: I think when you do that and have that kind of structure, it really stretches your creativity. You have to think about things in new and fresh ways to try and grapple with all those different letters. And I think that's the value of it, that it helps you to look at things from lots of different perspectives that you wouldn't normally see because you're stretched into these new words.
3: Yes. So how many acrostic sermons do you hear nowadays? Team, together everyone achieves more. And on your law, I meditate day and night, someone says. And says the wise people do that, but not the wicked ones. They are foolish. Why? Because they don't meditate. They are driven by their hormones, by their emotions, by their drives, by whatever. But the wise are driven by pondering, meditating, thinking about what they do. The key word of the Old Testament spirituality will be zakar, remember. We are supposed to remember the mighty acts of God. How do you remember? And what Jesus had in mind when he said, do this in remembrance of me. In other words, remember. Did he mean, oh, it would be nice if you guys remember that I lived once upon a time on this earth or what I did for you? What does it mean when the Old Testament says that when the Israelites did not remember God, things got terribly wrong? Obviously, it doesn't mean that... They could not recall, actually, do we worship Baal or Moloch or Astarta or Yahweh? Which, which one is it that our tribe is supposed to worship? That was not the remembering, it was something else. So why meditating, why pondering things is important for our spirituality? Why a book of meditations is an important segment of the inspired canon? Bob Kern.
9: You know, remember, and maybe just to say it a different way is to remind yourself. And apparently we very easily forget some of these things because we're preoccupied with other things maybe, or we're just prone to forgetting. But it's like, what does Mrs. White say? That the only fear we have for the future is that we forget how God has led us in the past. And so it's probably a useful thing that we just kind of continually remind ourselves that, God did lead out in the past. You know, we sometimes will get on ancient Israel's case about so close to the exodus. How could they stray so far away? Well, they were probably just like we are. They have the capability of forgetting things that just aren't right there in front of you. And so Jesus telling us to remember, God telling us to remember is to keep those things in front of us so that we
3: don't forget. Yes, thank you. Let's go to Karen. I think when
2: we remember, when we go back, we can remember things in different ways because we're in a different place now. So we go back and reflect over what happened before and we can actually get new learning out of the experience because we have something new that's happened in between now and looking back. And I think that's the richness of remembering and reflecting because there's always some new dimension that we can discover in that reflection, in that meditation.
3: Yes, thank you. I'm sure that you are exposed to different prayer requests in your line of spiritual experience, work or whatever. And I'm sure you have noticed that so many prayer requests resemble a shopping list. You no, know, when I go to the supermarket, I'm surprised how many people with their trolley, they have a shopping list and that's what they want to accomplish from this shopping trip. And often The requests that we get at the division level are similar to that. Please remember my grandma and a student is having an exam and -and so-and-so is having a medical operation or whatever, and we are supposed to pray for them. And it's good and nice, of course, to remember and to know that people are not alone and there is a community of faith and they are remembered and what's heavily on their mind that somebody else also remembers that. But meditation moves your prayers beyond the shopping list you see the bigger picture yes i have this looming deadline i have this looming event exam operation whatever it is in my life but there is a world beyond that and there is life before that and life after that without meditation you can be tempted to romanticize the spiritual experience Oh, I said a prayer before I opened the Bible, so everything will be okay. So my understanding of this text corresponds with God's understanding, or with St. Paul's, or with David's understanding. Mm, That's rather romantic understanding of how inspiration works. Yes, the Holy Spirit was needed to write that, and so Holy Spirit is needed to understand it. But as we said, how does the word of Psalmist to God becomes the word of God to me? In a different time, in a different context. And as we mentioned, it helps you to see that, yeah, the text says, I shall feel no evil, but if you still fear and experience fear, it doesn't mean that you are a bad believer. It means that you are normal. That means you are human. Meditation saves you from subjectivity. How many times you have heard in the worship service, I need to tell you, brothers and sisters, this happened to me last week. I was, you know, as a pastor, I can tell you from my Bible studies, I could almost count on it when I ask people, can you tell me what happened to you last week? As an introductory chit-chat, okay, I haven't seen you for one week. Tell me, how is life? How are you doing? What's going on? I could almost guarantee there would be someone in that group of people who were taking the group Bible study who would say, oh, uh, Mr. Duda, I need to tell you this. This happened to me last week. I lost my keys. And then I remember the things that I'm mentioning here, that God is real and that he hears our prayers. So I said a prayer and here was my glasses, my keys, my lost cat, my lost dog, you name it. That was Monday night, the Bible study. Tuesday night, I went to the youth group and I could almost count that somebody is going to say, I have been trying to get to a university place for three years in a row, and always I got a negative answer. And so I prayed hard and said, Lord, if this is your will, let me try once more. And so I tried for the fourth time. And today I got an answer, and it's negative. And you feel like, "Hmm, if God is looking for lost keys and lost cats, why can this person get a university place when they want it so hard and they tried? And you reflect on what's going on on Monday night in the Bible study group and Tuesday night in the youth group. Because meditation takes you beyond the level of subjectivity. We should also mention mysticism. But Karen, can you say what happens when people lose memory for medical reasons or some other reasons, physiological reasons? You want to take out the money from your ATM machine, but you don't remember your PIN? You want to check your email, but you don't remember your password?
2: Yes, yeah, really challenging. I used to be an occupational therapist working with people who had acquired brain injuries and memory problems. And it's so complex to even do the basic things in life. Like, how do you have a conversation with your teenagers when they come home from school and you can't even remember what year they're in or what they're studying. So it's, it's complex. It's challenging to help them live their lives and finding other ways to fill in their memory when they don't have a functional memory. And um, it's fascinating study. But it's interesting, someone was happy all the time because she could never remember what she had to worry about. And another person was continually sad because he could never remember anything good that happened in his life. So it's interesting, the perspectives.
3: So when Salmi says in Psalm 119, your word I have hidden in my heart, what does it mean? How do you hide God's word in your heart? Because this is how you gain wisdom for living. Rita?
0: I think it's... When you take it into yourself and make it part of you, then it's hidden in your heart. It becomes part of you. It's not something that you've hidden and you don't know where, like burying treasure, to hide it from somebody else. It's become hidden in you because it's become so incorporated in you that it is no longer visible as something separate.
3: And this is what meditation does to you. It lifts you beyond that level of subjectivity and romanticism and helps you to process it, to reflect on it, and to see what is the relationship to other things that are happening in your life. And that's why Psalmists can go ballistic for 176 verses on God's law, which we in Protestant and Christian tradition consider, are you normal? What's, What's wrong with you? But he's saying, this gives stability to my life. This gives anchor to a different perspective, which in today's fast-paced society, we don't usually see because the way I feel is the ultimate reality.
6: Chris? So I was just sort of thinking about all the questions you've asked, Daniel, and, and so much of this really, I think, can be answered in what Graham used to talk about is that you cannot read Scripture in one little place and then apply that to everything. You have to read the Bible as a whole. And so the danger is looking at Psalms or Proverbs or any of these books of the Bible, or or just even picking a chapter and saying, well, this is the way it is. Well, you may read on and get a whole new perspective in the New Testament or somewhere else in the Old Testament that is very different. And so as a whole, everything makes so much more sense. But looking at saying, okay, I'm going to go to Psalm 119, and this is the way it is. This is how it works. No, absolutely not. Now, it may, but it may not. And so that's why reading broadly and allowing things to get worse, as Graham would talk about, I'll never forget back in, I think it was 84, he was talking about, okay, guys, we're in the book of Judges, and things are about to get worse. You always talk about, keep reading on, things will get worse. And I love that because it was so frank and honest of him to say, you know what, this is why we have to read the Bible as a whole. Thank you. That's very helpful. Livius.
7: So my wife made an interesting observation listening to Rita's comment. And that is hiding something in your heart. Your heart is the center of everything you do. Your heart helps you to walk. Your heart helps you to speak. It pumps this fluid, this blood all over your body to put your thoughts into action. And so hiding something in your heart is really at the center of how you act, how you behave, how you talk. It just becomes who you are and it's integrated into you and your essence.
3: Yes, thank you. So let's go to Psalm 90. So you see how Psalm 119, 176 verses was talking about the law, which brings stability to the society, to the personal experience, helps the psalmist to remember what God provides for his life and brings an anchor to the constantly changing world. Let's go to Psalm 90. Let's read verses 1 to 4.
5: Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn us back to dust and say, turn back, you mortals. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past, or like a watch in the night.
3: And Let's read four more verses.
5: You sweep them away. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers, for we are consumed by your anger. By your wrath we are overwhelmed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. And The days of our life are seventy years, or perhaps eighty if we are strong. Even then their span is only toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away.
3: And verse 12, which is our memory text.
5: So teach us to count our days that we may gain a wise heart.
3: So, and the inscription at the beginning says, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Now, how many times have you heard attributed these things to David? So it's not David, it's Moses. (laughs) Now, why would Moses write a somber psalm like this? Now, remember in Numbers, it speaks about the rebellion at Kadesh Barnea, the Korak, etc. And God says, as a result of this, anyone who is 20 years or older is going to die within the next 40 years. And only those who are under 20 are going to enter the promised land. Can you see why a meditation like this could be very helpful? Recount the years and remember the smaller you are, how old are you? Three and a half. You know, the half becomes very important. But the text says, teach us to number our days because we live a day at a time. So what happens when you count your days? And notice the purpose of that is so that we gain a heart of wisdom, so that we become wiser. I
0: presume if you're counting your days, you're counting up to where you've got to now, not how far you're going forward, because you don't know how far you're going forward. So if you're counting the days that you've already had, you're having to remember things. It will certainly bring things to mind of what happened, things that ultimately were important, good or bad, developmentally for yourself, where you might have done things and on reflection now would do things differently or where things went well and you could remember to try and put that into practice if that similar sort of situation came up in the future. So it's about remembering, calling to mind. And it reminds me of a good few years ago now in a management training program, we were asked by the facilitator to try and remember journeys to school. And it's incredible when you actually are asked to do something and set your mind to it, how much actually does come back in the pictures in your head of journeys to school. Obviously not every single one of them, but things that are there embedded
2: to be recalled.
3: Yes, thank you. Karen?
2: I think when we count our days, we can make each day count, and we realize that each one is just an incredible gift from God. And when we're just living one day at a time and trying to do it well, it's kind of more manageable than trying to do a whole year or a whole lifetime. And each day, we can do spectacular things with God when we are channels of His love into this world, and we see that this day is a gift that we can use to share His love.
3: That's right. Thank you. So it makes the life manageable. You are not overwhelmed by the size of the problem. It helps you to see things you would not have seen otherwise. And as Chris put, it makes you intentional. It forces you, once again, to reflect and think deeply. Interestingly enough, you often hear these verses quoted at the funeral. But let's read verse 14 and 15. The psalm has a somber tone to it, But you can imagine that if the nation learns that if you are below 20, you are going to enter the promised land. And if you are above that, you don't know when you are going to die, but you know you are not going to live more than 40 years. So how do you live the rest of your life in a wise way so that you gain a wise heart? Let's read verse 14 and 15. What should numbering our days lead to?
5: Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love so that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil.
3: So the ultimate purpose is to gain wisdom and to live a joyful life. To see also the positive things. Usually as you get older, the negative things can overwhelm or overweight. The positive things. Remember John 2 and the wedding in Cana? You saved the best for the last, which is unusual, the man says. But here, Psalmist says, You get wisdom by pondering and taking life a day at a time so that you can rejoice and be glad and see the good things that God is doing. Sean? These verses, at least in the English translation, have some
7: very revealing words, and therefore meanings, that do reflect the depth of Moses here being thoughtful about what he's experiencing, and also intentional about what he's expressing. For example, in verse 15, measure. Uh, Verse 16, reveal. Verse 17, confirm. These are not experiences that one has without being quiet enough long enough and focusing long enough and hard enough to experience the meaning of these words measure reveal confirm
3: yes thank you so how do we bring wisdom for righteous living by meditating by remembering by counting the days making sure that each day counts poetry is there to bring wisdom into our living and how do you gain that wisdom by processing reality by seeing the stability, by taking life a day at a time. All right, let's go to Psalm 181, verses 7 and 8, Tuesday's lesson, 81, verses 7 and 8.
5: In distress you called, and I rescued you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you. O Israel, if you would. But listen to me.
3: So if you read Exodus 17, you learn that Meribah was the place where Israel tested God. Is he in our midst? Can he provide for us? They were not so sure. Now Psalm 81 turns that around and says that God was testing them. So now tell me which one is true. In historic book, The people are testing God in a poetic book. God is testing them. So when you read in Psalm 81, Psalm 95, Psalm 105, the Lord is testing you. How do you understand that? And back to what Chris mentioned, why the storyline is important. Why do you read or start reading from Genesis 1 and Genesis 3? Chris?
6: So do you think this is kind of like Pharaoh hardened his own heart versus God hardened his heart and... One says one thing, another said. And so this is where you're having to deal with that push and pull in the Bible. One place says this, another place says that. Is that it's kind of similar?
3: That's right. So if you just go to Psalm 81, 95 or 105, and then you read that God is testing me, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you go through a difficult situation in life today? Oh, well, I know what's going on. God is testing me.
6: So I'll never forget in a Sabbath school in a little teeny town in northern california by tahoe and this was right before my daughter was born and so in the sabbath school the sabbath school teacher says now raise your hand if you think the tree of good and evil was put in the garden as a test so god was testing adam and eve to see if they would obey him so everybody raised their hand except for me and a friend of mine he said, well, how come you raise your hand? I said, well, I don't believe it's a test. I said, why would God need to create human beings to figure out what they're going to do? He already knows the answer. I said, to me, it seems like tree of knowledge of good and evil was put there to make sure that Satan was only in one location. Otherwise, he could be everywhere. And then they could never learn because they were constantly being bombarded by all of Satan's little tricks.
3: All right, thank you. Genesis 22 says, after these things... God tested Abraham and he said to him, Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moria and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I shall show you. Now, if you start reading from Genesis 22, you surely are going to come to the conclusion that these things are happening today in my life because God is testing me. And you start praying, Lord, I will go as a missionary to Africa. Just don't kill my son. Don't take away my daughter. Don't do this to me. And I promise anything, whatever, I crawl on the wall. Now, if you start reading from Genesis 1, if you get to Genesis 3 and you discover in Genesis 3 and God said to Eve, to Adam and Eve, Adam, where are you? You Humans, where are you? Genesis 3, 9, but the Lord God called the man and said, where are you? Is he asking because he is testing them because he doesn't know where they are? Or is he wanting them to realize what happened to you? Yesterday you were looking forward to our meeting and today you are hiding. So when you read in Psalms that a psalmist is describing his experience as, Lord, why are you testing me? Don't you know what's inside me? Or when God speaks, I'm testing you. And you have Exodus 17 saying, actually, God was not testing them. They were testing God because they were not sure that God is big enough to handle this situation. How does reading this poetry, inspired poetry, help you to deal with issues of life? Or is it helpful? Is it confusing? Now, if your model is, I just read it the way it's written, the plain reading, I don't think about it, then it can be rather confusing. I understand that. I agree with that. Rita? I'm wondering
0: if this is more about God providing the opportunities for us to test ourselves so to speak to reflect on ourselves how are we behaving how would we behave how should we behave it's not so much that God's putting the test and have I got the answer right or have I got the answer wrong it's about giving opportunities to do this remembering to do this reflection to do this meditation so that we can grow in wisdom gain wisdom and become more like him
3: see what his character is really like. Yes. Psalm 95, verses 7 to 11.
5: For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand. Oh, that today you would listen to his voice. Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your ancestors tested me and put me to the proof. Though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation, and said, They are a people whose hearts go astray, and they do not regard my ways. Therefore, in my anger I swore they shall not enter my rest.
3: Amen. And everybody said, Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Now when was the last time you heard Psalm 95 in liturgical context? Quoted in the Worship service that they read, for 40 years I have loathed this generation. These are people whose hearts go constantly astray. They do not regard my ways. They have no regard for me. Therefore, I have nothing to do with them. And the whole congregation said, amen, that's the Lord that we serve. Now, why is it in the inspired collection of prayers? Now, I have heard many times, verse 1, Come, let us sing to the Lord, make joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let's come into his presence with thanksgiving, with joyful noise. The Lord is great God and great King above all kings. And then it stops and doesn't continue. Now, have a look, turn page, Psalm 96. Do you see? Psalm 95, and then comes Psalms 96. Terry.
5: Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be revered above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary.
3: Okay. So can you see how after Psalm 95, verse 11, comes Psalms 96 with its 13 verses and how people are supposed to remember what happened to people wandering in the wilderness. It is well to praise God and to celebrate his creation. But when you do that, It gives a different perspective with your grumbling and murmuring. And after Psalm 96 comes 97, the call for the whole earth and Zion to celebrate and be glad for what God is doing and will do. The heavens proclaim his righteousness, verse 6, 97, 6, and all the peoples behold his glory. So this is the new song. But then comes Psalm 98, verses 7 to 9.
5: Let the sea roar and all that fills it in the world and those who live in it. Let the floods clap their hands. Let the hills sing together for joy at the presence of the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity.
3: Can you see how Psalm 95 looks in the past? What happened? the mighty acts of God and the response of humans. Psalm 96 looks at the current response to that. And 97 as a part of new song that all people will behold his glory. And then part of the new song in Psalm 98 is looking towards the future and the revelation of God's act of righteousness and his character in the future judgment. And that is the reason to praise him. Can you see how if you only okay, use the Bible as a holy horoscope, so what's the word for today? And you come to the texts in Psalm 81 or 95 that speaks about God testing us. It almost guarantees the wrong perspective. However, if you look at it at the context and compare 81 with Exodus 17, with Genesis 22, with Genesis 3, If you take Psalm 95 in the context of 96, 97, 98, you see how singing a new song looks not only into the past, it looks into the present, it looks into the future, and sees the great things that God is doing and the implications for your life of murmuring and grumbling. It gives you a different perspective on those texts. And it helps you to gain the heart of wisdom. It gives you wisdom for righteous living. Okay, so Psalm 141, The Deceitfulness of the Wicked Way. I
5: call upon you, O Lord. Come quickly to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as an evening sacrifice. Set a guard over my mouth, O Lord. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not turn my heart to any evil, to busy myself with wicked deeds in company with those who work iniquity. Do not let me eat of their delicacies.
3: Okay, so this is a psalm of David. I am calling upon you, Lord. And what does he ask him to do? Set a guard over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not turn my heart to any evil. Now, James says in the New Testament, now, don't blame David that he doesn't know what James is saying. I remember when we had the lessons on Job some 30 years ago, and the lesson said, how come Job got so depressed, was the question, and then the text where, you know, how he curses his day of birth, etc., etc. And then the remark after that was, oh, it was because Job obviously forgot what Daniel said in chapter 7 of his book. Yeah, sure. Job, who is a contemporary of Abraham, forgot what Daniel said. You know, six hundred before Christ. So of course, David doesn't know that God doesn't tempt anyone to evil, that James says in the New Testament. But he says, "Do not turn my heart to any evil, to be busy with the wicked deeds, with company of those who work iniquity." And of course, Psalm one one has similar thoughts. So, what is going on here? How do you get wise heart? How do you find wisdom for righteous living? What do these Psalms, like 1 and 41, say to us? What's the lesson for us there? Can you see any progression in Psalm 141? In verses 1 and 2, what is he concerned with? I lift my voice and I lift my hands. Sean. I really enjoy seeing the personal appeal that he's
7: making for a different perspective. Reorient my perspective. This is not something that happens all of a sudden. This is an appeal to reorient his thinking, at least at the moment. Keep it there. He cannot do this for himself unless he is reflecting very deeply about his personal need and he's reaching out for confirmation that somebody else is hearing that expression. I can think about that all day long. When I speak about it in my wife's presence, my son's presence, it's fixed in my mind in a deeper way. It's also a moment of accountability. So I think this openness before God is a way for him to reorient how he is approaching his own spiritual dynamic. I need to really be true to myself before God that I am going to take seriously this discipline of approaching God in a more honest, open way.
3: Mm -hmm. Thank you. Very helpful. So David is anointed as a king, and that throws his life into disarray. He's persecuted by Saul. He's away from the tabernacle, from God's house, so to say. And it's easy to make stupid decisions. Remember when Abigail meets him and says, I know what is it like to be married to a fool? But the world doesn't need more than one fool. So you act as an anointed of the Lord, not as a fool. And here is a Psalm 141, in which David, who is far from the house of the Lord, from the tabernacle, is expressing his thoughts so that he does not act like a fool. And so in verse 1, he speaks about my voice, my hands. In verse 2, in verse 3 and 4, he speaks about my mouth, my lips. Verses 5 to 7, about my head in verses 8 to 10, about my eyes. So how do you gain a heart of wisdom? Can you connect Psalm 141 with Romans 12, verses 1 to 2? What is it that you are supposed to bring in the house of the Lord? Let's read Romans 12, 1 to 2.
5: I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect.
3: Okay, so what's the connection between Psalm 141 and this invitation, Terry?
5: I think, isn't it bringing our whole selves, offering our whole self, all our strength, everything that we do, to God, to be used of Him, to be used of Him in a way that is helpful and uplifting to others?
3: Yes, yes, definitely. And so how do we deliver ourselves from evil? Remember we said meditation rescues us from mysticism. When we pray in the Lord's Prayer, which is our prayer, remember John 17 is the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6 is our prayer. When you pray, you pray like this and deliver us from evil. How does God do it? It's like when you pray before you eat and Lord, please bless this food. How does the Lord bless this food? Remember Graham saying that sometimes God feels like saying, I would gladly do so. But next time, could you say this prayer when you push the trolley in the supermarket? Then at least I can do something about it. Now, when it's on the plate, ready to eat, there's not very much I can do unless you believe in magical thinking. We don't have Ashley, a nutritionist, with us today, so she could give you a judgment on what is that plate going to do to your system. So when we pray in the prayer, deliver us from evil, when David says in Psalm 141, let my prayer be counted as an incense before you, set guard over my mouth, do not turn my heart to any evil, what's the answer? How does that going to happen? How do you get wisdom for righteous living? Now, in Psalm 141, he's considering what is the temptation to him. Do not let me busy myself with wicked deeds. Let me not be in company of those who work iniquity. Do not let me eat of their delicacies. Remember Psalm 73 of Asaph. When I was pondering how the wicked prosper. It's easy for me to think, maybe I should be doing that. Maybe I should be in their company. Maybe in vain I try to follow these things. And that's why he prays for his voice, for his lips, for his mouth, for his head, for his eyes. Because he realizes certain things may appear from a certain perspective as attractive from a short point of view. But their long-term impact is going to be negative and destructive. Can you see the wisdom of long-term thinking, of transforming of your heart, of your thinking that Romans 12 speaks about, the transformation? Do not let the world squeeze you into its mold, but be you, be transformed, because that's the way to gain wisdom, short-term, long-term
7: goals. Sean? It reminds me of the experience that Jesus had with a woman caught in adultery. Where in the end, he simply said, just go and sin no more. Go and be a better girl, as Graham would say. Here seems the answer to your question is, activate your better choices. Upon your reflection, upon your meditation, you have identified what it is that you need to do, the direction that you need to go. Now activate that and enjoy a little bit more freedom than you have had and these are the way god is going to answer your prayer activate your better thinking
3: and make good choices yes that's how you get a wise heart that's how you make good choices psalm 1 what are the blessings of the righteous living what are the deceitfulness of the wicked ways in psalm 141 that david prays that god somehow protects him so in Psalms, you can see the consequences of two different lifestyles and the reflection of the awareness that people have if they don't consider the long-term impact. It's easy to be attracted to evil because of the immediate results that it brings. And the fact that the psalmist admits that the boundaries between the two are sometimes difficult to discern, but it's not easy. But if you take the long-term view, it helps you to see And also notice, as I mentioned under number seven, the role of the worshiping and supporting community, that ultimately he doesn't do it alone. There are others around him. In the multiplicity of godly counselors, there is wisdom. And Psalm 128.
5: Happy is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be happy and it shall go well with you.
3: So can you see the the blessings in your employment, the fruit of your labor? Then it goes to the home, verse 3 and 4. So what they considered blessing then and there. And then verse 5. Can you read 5 and 6? The
5: Lord will bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel.
3: Okay, so you see the progression from your work to your home, to the city, to the whole nation. And it shows that the blessings are here and now. You don't need to escape to, all oh, this is, the world is a bad place. If only we can leave it as soon as possible. All right, time to pull it together. Wisdom for righteous living. How do we gain it? Look at the experiences of other people. And the psalmists... Express in poetic terms that can easily be remembered, can be memorized. Remember, this is the oral society with auditory, they learn things by heart. And this poetry helps us to see that it's important in life to be wise, not only happy. If you look under number nine, we live in a society where most people rather would be happy than wise. But God is more concerned with our character than with our comfort. And that's why He invites us to reflect, to remember, to ponder, to see the long-term connections, consequences. And it reminds us that the primal mode of knowing God is obedience based on who He is and what He does, based on God's faithfulness. Salvation is not based on our performance, but on Him. But when we consider these things, reflect, remember, see the consequences, we gain wisdom, and we'll be able not only to help ourselves, but others to see God in an attractive way. Let's pray. Now, God, we are thankful for these poetic ways how people in the past express their varied experiences, positive and negative, and how it helps us today to reflect on what it means to be wise in a society where we live. Thank you that you provide a level of satisfaction and happiness to each one of us. We would not be where we are if it were not for your special work, special grace special blessings that each one of us experience individually as families and the community of faith. But we also pray that on reflecting on this, we can get beyond the narrow and romantic and pietistic way of understanding what is your will for each one of us and for the world in which we live. And thank you that you are always willing to bless us as we go through this process. We all pray for a wise heart, for good decisions and for blessings not only for us individually, but for our circle of friends and influence that can benefit from knowing who you are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.